You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to The Daily Briefing. I'm Jack Farley. It's Monday, November 23rd. I'm going to be joined shortly by Tyler Neville, who is a former guy who worked in finance, and he used to trade for a $100 billion fund. He's got a lot of strong views about the market, and I'm looking forward to speaking to him. But before we do that, uh, let's go to Haley Drasnan with today's stories. Hey, Jack. Markets were up on Monday. We saw early gains in the Dow, S&P 500, and the NASDAQ being driven by promising results from a third coronavirus vaccine. AstraZeneca announced on Monday that its COVID-19 vaccine is 70% effective on average and up to 90% effective in its large-scale trials. AstraZeneca's vaccine hasn't yet matched the effectiveness of those developed by Pfizer and Moderna, so we saw its shares lower today. But its vaccine has advantages of being much cheaper and easier to store. Over the weekend, Pfizer applied for an emergency use authorization with the FDA. Its shares were down on Monday. Moderna could seek a go-ahead from regulators in the coming weeks, its shares were up on Monday. Vaccine successes lately have added to a risk-on mood in markets, and investors have really snapped up assets that could benefit from the end of lockdowns and the loosening of travel restrictions. We saw the dollar also slipped on Monday as investor appetite for risk increased. Energy stocks led gains Monday. Oil was up, boosting hopes for a recovery in fuel demand. Oil even hit its highest level since early September, and the prospect of a vaccine has reshaped the oil futures curve, with near-term prices rebounding more than later-dated ones. Shares in entertainment, cruise lines, and airlines also jumped on hopes of distributing a vaccine which would reopen the economy and boost travel early next year. Tech stocks, however, Meanwhile, we're really under pressure. Facebook and Apple fell, Netflix traded lower, Microsoft and Alphabet dipped slightly. We've seen these work-from-home stocks take a hit as we look to an economy post-COVID. Investors are trying their best to look beyond the short-term threat of a double-dip recession. We could see higher volatility this week, given it is a shorter week with the Thanksgiving holiday, and coronavirus cases continue to surge across the country. Congress is on recess with the Thanksgiving holiday, which also makes it difficult to pass a stimulus bill, making it even more delayed. So all of these could contribute to how the markets will react this week. Back to you, Jack. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Thanks, Haley. Welcome, Tyler. 
Jack, great to be here. Got one question for you, though. Yeah? Are you ready to get shoved in a locker today? <laughs> well, you know, Tyler, I have to say, you know, um, thanks so much for, um, you know, coming and also for what you're wearing, your outfit. It really says that you're professional and that you're taking this seriously. So thanks. Yeah, I'm against the suits. Just <laughs> like uh, Dave Portnoy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, yeah, uh, just to everyone at home, Tyler said, am I ready to get shoved in a locker? That's because Tyler and I, uh, you know, Tyler actually used to be uh, my boss. He now works at a, a at Creative Studios, which is a different uh, part of Real Vision. Um, but, you know, we, we go way back. And uh, Tyler and I sort of have diametrically opposed views um, with regards to the economy, the stock market, but most notably the credit market. So he and I have kind of been going back and forth. You know, if you've been watching the Daily Briefing for a long time, like, Two months ago, I was like, hey, well, actually, Tyler said this, Tyler said that. Um, and whenever credit spreads continue to decline, Tyler says, suck it. So I'm here as a humble man or as humble as I can be. Um, you know, credit spreads, and uh, if you look at a chart of the high yield US spreads or investment grade spreads, they've continued to decline. And that's been a source of strength, Tyler. And this is a point you make, making your points for you. So they're not as good when you say them. Um, Should, uh, is go have a snack now or? <laughs> um, you know, so investment grade spreads, uh, very low, high yield spreads very low. So, um, you know, Tyler, I want you to lay out um, your thesis. Yeah, so I'm still overall very bullish. Um, the backdrop is more of a, a macro thing. Maybe let's start talking about today. Today was kind of like a little bit of a wash. Um, you know, the market was up 60 bips, S&P, and then the NASDAQ was pretty much flat. But you had a lot of dispersion underneath there. You had Apple down 3%. Uh, Zoom down two, PayPal was up four, and Square was up like six. So, you know, a lot, a lot's going on underneath the surface. I see. I think you're seeing some reallocation across, uh, you know, different parts of the market. And you know, mostly the biggest thing was small caps were up two percent. So you continue to see that outperformance from smaller companies, which is kind of like, I think my macro picture is large companies are, are death by a thousand cuts. Large leveraged companies. And you're seeing the innovative companies uh, that are smaller and made up of a debt or equity in their market, their capital structure outperforming. Interesting. You tell me more about that because when I think of sort of the you know U.S. stocks will go up forever, I kind of that I usually pair that with the narrative that it's the Fang stocks will that will absorb this liquidity because it's the smaller uh, companies that don't have access to the capital markets that are going to lose market share because. Of, um, of 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 COVID nineteen and, and the shutdowns. Uh, so why do you think it's going to be these smaller companies that are going to uh, succeed going forward? It's just you know, in this new administration, I think there's going to be a target on bigger companies' backs, um, and you know, all the antitrust stuff is probably going to come to fruition to, to one extent or another. And also, it's just hard to grow when you're a mega cap corporation. Like think about growing at a three hundred billion dollar market cap exponentially it's just hard to do so i think you're seeing underneath as the liquidity is still there and the government's still there with the fed and treasury um and we'll talk about yellen later uh that that's happening underneath the surface and the fangs are probably not the best risk reward anymore and you're seeing a lot of the beaten up stuff in the s p outperform and the small caps as well so but okay but the s p is is the s p is you know, like twelve percent Fang, right? Uh, still, yes, yes. So yeah. that's just the the market cap weighted kind of uh, problem with ETFs and and stuff like that. But you know, I'm talking below below 
the surface, you're seeing like wide dispersion in single stock, which we'll get to it eventually as well. Yeah. Um, so it's not when you say a small cap that it's not small cap value stocks like the stocks that rallied today, like Occidental Petroleum or Valero Energy or the you know cruise liners, heavily indebted companies that are banking on a quick and speedy recovery. You're not saying that you're you're more betting on like the IPOs, the snowflakes, the zooms, stuff like that, right? Correct. I think I think those are and those aren't even that small cap anymore. But um, yeah, yeah, basically innovative companies that are that are doing something different, and we'll see the uh, performance dispersion uh, later in the talk. But you know, if you want to talk positioning in the market right now, maybe we can get into that. Yeah, let's uh, get into it. Let's do it. Sure, sure. So, so right now, you know, the macro backdrop, I'd say, like. People are like a little bit confused. I would say more bearish. If you look at all the surveys, the Bank of America survey, they're coming out and they're saying, you know, look out. Like everyone is is in the market and kind of on one side of this thing. But if you look at the breadth in the market, uh, there's a great chart um, JC Peretz put on Twitter, who's a, a frequenter here. And uh, in the New York Stock Exchange stocks above their 200-day moving average, uh, that that measure hit 82% last last week, and when that happens, that's actually like typical. The S and P will outperform. It's a leading indicator for two years, so that's the first chart we're looking at here. Um, and then to go further in futures positioning, you see uh, U.S. equity spec positioning at a three-week net low of 26 billion dollars. So that's that shows you there's some bearishness in actual positioning versus like what they're telling you. Um, so tell, tell me what that means. Um, that is that just the total aggregate amount of capital on the long side minus on the short side for all expiries of the futures. Tell me what that means. That's just your speculative positioning for futures. So, so you have your non-speculators that are just using it as hedging. This is probably your hedge funds uh, going out and and shorting futures, which you know, they're always constantly hedging out their books and they use futures to do it in an easy way or it's market makers um, on the sell side as well. So generally, you don't see this big of a uh, of a negative position. Um, it, generally, they get squeezed out. I, th- I use it as a contra indicator. Got it. Okay. So it's kind of like the institutional version of buying put option on SPY. Correct. Correct. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Um, well, where were we? Let's go. Okay, so you mentioned market breadth, and you, you showed me this chart, and it's a, it's a good chart. And, you know, I, I make a lot of charts, so I I, I know uh, shit from Shinola. But this <laughs> one of uh, uh, you said it's a lagging indicator. I, I made my own chart of um, looking at market breadth of the uh, New York Stock Exchange going back to 2000, and it seems to me that it's more of like a coincident indicator. It's like when stocks are going up, this thing is high, and then people can go on TV. And say, oh, stocks are going up because this is high, and it will continue to go up because it's high. Like, why aren't? What's different about you, Tyler? Why aren't you a talking head um, who's going on TV? Share with me uh, your knowledge. I mean, it's it's a, a coincident indicator for sure. I, I mean, it's no, there's no ironclad thing. I just think that when you have this many stocks above their 200-day moving average, it takes a lot of selling supply to break that, and then also psychologically, when it gets to the 200-day moving average, you generally have institutional buyers that start stepping in to buy the stock. So it's kind of like this rough gauge. Um, it's no, it's not a, it's it's more of where you're positioned. And I, I wanted to show it relative to where, you know, sentiment is, where you see a lot of the things saying, oh, you know, we're at the greed stage of sentiment. Um, but positioning wise, it's like, things are looking like not so, so bad for the long term. 
And what do you mean by that? Are you referring to the virus, the economic recovery? What's your Just view? What do you think about just that we're I'm talking straight stock market positioning. I think there's a big difference in what econ economists say and guys that talk about the market say, right? Like if you look at the actual economic data, things are pretty horrible, but improving. Um, and if you look at the stock market, I'm basing that off simple supply and demand of securities, right? Like who's buying, who's selling, like a very market structure related um, thing where I think those two things get crisscrossed more than anything, where you could say, you know, the economy is horrible and, you know, the virus is spreading and data is rolling over. And that's all true. But, you know, there's still an incremental buyer. There's too much capital and not enough ideas. And if I go go on to debt positioning, if that's cool. Yeah, for sure. So, so everyone's worried about the debt markets, obviously, right? And... If you actually look under the hood, you see the high yield credit credit derivative index. The spreads just collapse. Like in March, everyone should have been concerned the world was ending, and since then it's almost at lows, which basically allows your corporates to go issue debt in the markets. And if you're not, you know, if you don't read much about like you know debt issuance, here here's one deal that just happened. Uh, last week, Charter Communications issued debt in three tranches for $3 billion. And the demand was so strong, the company only had to pay 3.86% for the 30-year maturity. And then afterwards, yields went lower in the aftermarket. So, and that's not even the best part. The best part, the kicker here, is that Charter said that the use of proceeds were actually for buybacks. So we not only have like the buyback story died, and now it potentially could be back. And this is a company that's like kind of secularly dying, but still has access to the debt markets and the unfunded pensions by the paper, and they can do kind of financial engineering things. So from a debt perspective, these companies are still getting funded, even though it's COVID and the economics, you know, the economic data looks awful, but like 3.86% for a 30 year bond, like, for for a secularly dying company, I, I don't know. That's pretty incredible, right? So yeah, it's a very low yield, but doesn't doesn't uh, if you believe in the cyclical nature of economics, isn't that a, like a low credit spread is basically the exact same thing as a uh, pointing pointing to a chart with a low credit spread is pretty much the exact same thing as pointing to a, a chart of a high stock market. Um, like what isn't the higher things go? Uh, very, so very. Does that increase the chance that it will come crashing down? Yeah, but I think credit can stay low. It's like vol, right? Like low vol can stay low for a long time, and credit spreads can stay low for a long time. It's different than equity market, where you know, you know, you might have a pullback here and whatever. I, I think, I think with all the backstops going on, you'll probably see credit stay. And, and one of the things is December 31st, you know, some of the Fed facilities are getting taken back by the Treasury. We'll see if that happens with uh, yeah. with Yellen on the horizon or whatever. But I just I just don't think they're gonna make this transition any rockier than it has to be. Um, so that, that, that's where I'm at there. Let's, the let's talk about, so sorry for interrupting. Um, let's talk about the emergency programs that the Fed initiated um, in March and April, the emergency lending programs, the municipal liquidity facility, Main Street facility, uh, PPP, of course, that was the one that was taken up the most, the corporate mm -hmm. credit facility. 
Uh, all of these are set to roll over on December 31st. Does that give you a little bit of worry or not at all? It's on the radar. It doesn't give me worry because right now the market is saying to me they don't care at all. And the other thing is we are in a gerontocracy and okay. they are not going to let this thing go. I said that before. It, one of my my sister's best lines is uh, beware of of acronyms and and people with lots of initials. And so what's to say that they just can't roll out another credit facility with oh, call it the PPP, you know, you PPP unlimited, who knows, you know, like the chances of that. I mean, I, I have an idea because what they're currently doing is uh, directly like abrogates the Federal Reserve Act of 1913. So they needed to pass an act of Congress, um, the CARES Act that was passed in March. Um, and now that part is it's expiring, right? Well, I'm not saying, look, look, the Fed so is, so is the, uh, there, there was but, something but, before you got into the business was they, they you know, when, when these sort of um, political things come into the limelight, it, it's the best because it gets the, the Democrats and the Republicans like arguing against each other. And there was one thing back, I think it was like 2014 or 2012, the fiscal cliff. And it was like front page news every day Oh, the fiscal cliff. And all the Republicans were saying, oh, God, watch out for the fiscal cliff. And then they just changed the, the rules for the debt, debt ceiling and everything was fine again. And, you know, we just kept issuing debt. This stuff happens and it's great for the media because they can all argue about Democrats and Republicans. But at the end of the day, you have unfunded pensions that need to allocate money. And the gerontocracy is not going to let, you know, the policeman, the firefighter, the teacher just go to the wayside. Like they're going to keep these programs up. You got it. I have a, I have a question. Question. Student. I have a question for Professor Tyler. Um, so were there were there unfunded pensions with teachers, firemen um, in 2006, 2007 that owned like mortgage-backed securities and uh, CDOs? Yes. And, and the, the Fed, I mean, the Fed tried and bailed them out too, but sometimes the, the wave of defaults is just too big, right? Yeah, well, I think there, there was two different things back then, which is um, that was a retail, all the retail holders had a lot of that stuff. They were, they were in the mix. Now, Everybody that owns this stuff is too big to fail. They just call up their politician and they say, hey, uh, my commercial $100 million property is about to default and uh, can you give me a bailout or let me use my accounts receivable as earnings? Like George, uh, Jim Chanos pointed out. Yep. Um, that, was a, Jim Chanos, Mike, that, was, that was a great interview. It came out um, last week, exactly a week ago. Um, Tyler, if I recall, was it, was it really a lot of retail uh, in, in the 2008, in the, in the bubble? I feel like it was a lot of retail people buying housing and subprime but oh, the yeah. loans there's a lot of japanese companies pension funds a lot of hedge funds like yeah. I mean, you can just buy a ceo of me you know just guy on the street right everyone will know they they weren't buying but the main function underneath was the retail investor right like when they started selling their houses and defaulting you know that that followed through i think the government covered that up a little to a lot of extent with the PPP and all these programs. And I just think that that keeps going. Listen, we, we are talking about a generation of boomers who handed out trophies to guys like us, you know, as participation trophies so that our egos, we can't take losses on anything. We, we we're now a couple generations that can't take losses on, on anything. Right. And that ethos to think it doesn't follow through to the politics when the Keynesian print, printing presses are, are on full blast. 
not only in America, but across the world. Like it's really hard to short this market. Now, there, there's some side effects here, and I'll go on to, to the private markets, right? I think mm-hmm. because you have all these unfunded pensions, the private markets are, are the place of, of real growth. It's so hard to be Exxon or, you know, I don't know, some giant company and, and pivot to some, something innovative. It's just impossible. You have too much bureaucracy and people that have done things a certain way. So everything is now moving to the private markets. And believe it or not, VC funding hit a record in 2020 at $69.1 billion. Um, PitchBook just came out with this chart um, today. And one of the highlights was Andreessen Horowitz raised two funds for $4.5 billion. One was just an addition to their flagship fund. And then one was a growth fund that invests in like Series C uh, scalable companies. And, and to say like, this is bearish, I mean, every day I, I get this, this newsletter from Axios Pro Rata, which is incredible. Yep. And yep, yep. they talk about, you know, all the financings that go on. This, this is a couple I want to highlight. Torchy's Tacos raised $400 million in a pandemic, which is just like a restaurant, right? How is this happening? So they're all just like small, tiny corporations that have access to the to institutional capital uh, and can scale. And then Contour Partners raised $82 million for its fourth seed fund in software. So below the surface, uh, all these all the private companies are getting capital as pension funds allocate down the risk spectrum to, to the private markets because they're not getting that yield in the public markets. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yes, isn't this exactly the same dynamic um, that happened in? Uh, 2000, 2003, when when the Fed uh, lowered rates and then investors had to go up on the risk spectrum in order to um, get the same amount of yield. So they started buying mortgage-backed securities, subprime mortgage-backed securities, you know, negative amortization securities, balloon payments, you know, adjustable rate, all this, all this stuff. Um, and that it ended up being extremely risky and it ended up blowing up in their face. Like, yeah, uh, I mean, how, I feel like I am a believer in technology and I'm a believer in the future. But just because you can raise twice as much money to invest in, t- you know, tech startups, that doesn't mean that there's twice as much innovation. So what, how, what, uh, what will prevent there from being sort of uh, scattershot returns um, and, and you know some, some serious problems down the road? I can't tell you for sure, but when you get Calsters basically coming out and saying, you know, we're going to do an opportunistic asset class, uh, which is Calsters is one of the biggest pension funds in the country. And not only that, they're going to leverage it. So they're learning from the Canadian pensions now. And that's the beginning of them. Usually like when they start pulling capital away, I think that's when you need to be concerned. But like now they're, you know, we've basically torched our fiat money system. Their negative uh, yielding bonds are at an, almost a new high. I think, I believe it's a new high, 17 trillion or something. And you know, where, where you go to pay out that policeman's pension, 
where do you go to pay, play, pay out the teacher? You have to at least try to go out in the risk spectrum. So, you know, they even, Calsters even had um, a, they called it an investment strategy and risk, an innovative strategies investment policy. And there's a great, um, it's, it's a whole paper, but I think it even like covers maybe even cryptocurrencies, which is nuts to think about. Um, it's just yeah. Alt- yeah. alternative investments. So that's one of the biggest funds in the country. Well, there's no doubt that this uh, liquidity um, that's being provided by central banks is spilling over to precious metals, um, Bitcoin, and other things that are not traditional finance, financial assets that generate a, a said return that you can hold. Uh, my question is, so you've, you've proven me that there's a lot of capital that's in play in the markets. So I could be like, you know, in 1926, I could say, oh, you know, I'm a little, I'm a little worried about this. And you say, oh, but don't worry, like retail investors are borrowing money on margin to invest in stocks. Like there's so much bullishness. Like I, I agree with that. Yeah. I mean, and is that a problem? You mean long term? I, I think I think Mike Green brought this point up, but like there was a back in the Weimar Germany days, it was like a point of you know passion that their market did not trade at a lower price. And are we getting at that same sort of uh, market? I, I think where it's happening, like this is the giant debt for equity swap where you know it. If equity is zero or even negative, is that really, if debt is zero or negative, what is equity? Where is equity priced? A hundred times sales? Who knows, right? Yeah, we were talking uh, earlier about Snowflake, which has an incredible, uh, very lofty um, price to sales ratio. And the question is, as you said, like if, if rates uh, go to zero or even below zero, how does that impact the valuations? Um, because you know the traditional way of, of a valuing company is based on the dividend discount model where you uh, project out future cash flows and then you discount them to the future. And the discount is usually sort of the risk-free rate. But if the risk-free rate is zero, then every single equity should be worth an infinite amount of money, right? Yeah. I mean, you can make that argument. I just think it's hilarious. If you talk to any analysts and portfolio managers you know, confidentially on Wall Street, they they're so confused at what's going on. They they have no idea. You know, there's some there's some guys that are just riding the wave, but in terms of like valuations and all that stuff, I think that went out the window when there's so many different incentives in the market. There's you know pricing pressure on on active managers versus ETFs that causes like a great herd like mentality. There's one of the the charts I had was retail versus uh, hedge fund performance. Yeah, and in retail is just crushing any any long short hedge fund. Granted, different different incentives. Uh, and there's there's yeah. one of my one of my favorite charts is the Renaissance IPO versus Q's and S and P, which shows like year to date IPOs are up eighty eight percent, the spies up twelve, and the Q's are up thirty seven. So IPOs are absolutely crushing. Um, but there's just yeah there's there's just a lot of a lot of issues. Yeah, um, I mean, what your note on the debt for equity swap? I'm just looking at a Bloomberg chart um, I made of just the Federal Reserve's uh, balance sheet from 2000 um, to to now, and it looks pretty similar to the uh, chart of the S and P. Um, and what I like about this chart is that it just doesn't show just the line; it shows what everything is the, the constituents. So there's the red line is U.S. Treasuries, and then the green line is mortgage-backed securities, and 
that is the bulk, the vast, vast, vast majority of the balance sheet. So all of these sort of emergency crisis lending vehicles that were initiated in March and April, the Fed really has, has done barely done. Uh, I mean, it's probably 30, 40 billion dollars, which is obviously a ton of money. But for talking macro, it's really not. Um, so so I think that is the one thing that actually gives me some hope is that the um, markets didn't need that liquidity. Just the fact that it was there gave them enough confidence to go out on the risk uh, spectrum themselves like you did. Um, my question is, what happens when these uh, backstops are removed on December 31st? I think they just re-implement them. Like, it, otherwise, you would see you would see what you'd see into the election if it was really something, which is vol would be bid up astronomically if it was really like a a, a known known where it was like I mean, this. it has been. I mean, vol vol is, is has been low since the vaccine news of since the, over the past two weeks. It's gone back to sort of pre crisis pre you know COVID levels, but from April to um, you know, late October, vol was consistently uh, in the 30s. And that leads lead some to believe that we were in sort of a new vol regime. And that, so you, some people complained. They thought vol was uh, overpriced. And so far, they've been right. Yeah. I mean, they were. it was overpriced into the election, for sure. And I, I just think when you get retail people thinking they're smarter than the market, you get a you, you get them chasing stuff. But you're, you're not seeing that this time, um, which makes me think, it's getting completely discounted. Like it's just going to be overlooked, and you know they're going to re-implement stuff. I mean, the Yellen thing is a big, big news. To yeah, me. let's talk about that. Yeah. So, so well, let's talk about two things. This is just the uh, what, what we're what we're living in. Uh, so Biden chooses Joe Kerry, as, uh, John Kerry, as his uh, climate czar, which is just hilarious to me because this guy's been a career politician, like. Can someone just get like a, an engineer in here that knows? Like, get get uh, was it Rob West from Thundersend? Some someone younger who understands this stuff. Get, yeah. Instead, they put John Kerry in there, and then they put Yellen at at the the Treasury, which is, I mean, this is a really fascinating thing to me because when Yellen was the head of the Fed, she basically is a a liberal and wants um, to. She's a dove. She's a dove, and she wants to make right. a middle class whole. But what she did during her time at the Fed was, you know, the monetary policy took up the reins of, of asset prices, and there was no real fiscal at, at the back at, during the, her time there. Whereas now, <laughs> this is basically an outright, you know, saying MMT is on the horizon with her and Jerome Powell, and now maybe that gets to the middle classes somehow. In in with her there and Powell at the helm of the Fed. So I think this is way bigger news than the market is telling us today. And we'll see. We'll see what happens. Yeah, well, the market was down a little bit. But at 250 or so, when the news was announced, we got a pretty, pretty big bump. Um, so that we ended actually in the green. Um, yeah. But you're thinking it's, it's, it should be it should have gone up even more. I, I mean, who knows? It's always these... There's so much uh, algorithmic trading in the market these days that you don't know who's the real capital or or not, and it's also discounted a lot into the future. So, yeah, I, I don't know. Well, Tyler, this is also interesting. I feel like you and I 
are talking about, we have very different views for sort of the next year in terms of price action in equities, as well as where spreads are going. You know, I could bring up some data that came across my screen today about uh, the TSA passenger volume uh, over the past week was the highest that it has been since before the pandemic. And you might say, okay, that's great for airlines. Um, but it, it, actually, it actually means that people are congregating more. They're going home for Thanksgiving. That's just going to increase the spread of the virus. But I actually don't want to ask you about that. I want to I extend um, your gaze well into the future. And I want to say, let's say that you are right. Let's say that uh, we avert a financial crisis. The Fed, the ECB, the BOJ, the PBOC, they successfully um, delay and, and stave off um, sort of a, a, a massive credit crisis, as well as inflation being in check. Let's just, I'll give you that for two things. What do you think uh, is going to be the future return streams um, of traditional assets like equities and bonds, particularly as it relates to zombie companies? Um, and so I want you to talk about zombie companies. And first, why don't you tell us about what is a zombie company? A zombie companies where uh, the interest rate is higher than what they actually make in operating cash flow. And so that 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 this is a cause for concern, um, but I think when you saw rates go lower, you're seeing the market have the ability to refinance out a bunch of years. So you're seeing the debt issuance for you know the past couple months has been basically to kick out maturities. So the near term default um, for a lot of these companies is kicked kick to the future. That's what liquidity does, right? And and so those those companies can kind of kick the can down the road. What it also does is it oversupplies the market with whatever they're selling, right? It's if it's um say an energy company coming to market, they're gonna start pumping more oil now. They have the cash to do it. And that just kind of has the overhang. I think Everyone's talking about inflation, 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 inflation. The supply of treasuries is obviously going up with the deficit at three trillion. Uh, but I think we're more likely to have stagflation than than inflation if that's if if the Fed and the Treasury don't artificially suppress three trillion dollars worth of treasuries. Um, and I I think they will. They'll have to because the interest rate, the interest expense for the government is like astronomical if we just go up 1% in like the 10 year. It, it, mm-hmm. it grows by like billions and billions of dollars. So yeah, rate, rates are nailed to the floor. And they have to, they have to, unfunded pension liabilities are 120% of GDP. So you can't afford higher rates. Like they're, they're, if they, if they do, this whole experiment just explodes and nothing is worth anything. You know, that's why I think this great rotation, they'll just keep pumping it, pumping it, pumping it. Cause the the alternative is is chaos. That's why you know I'm so bearish and bullish, right? Like the in, in the supply, the supply of growth shrinks and you have to one other thing that happens when you know rates and debt issuance is still going is all these giant corporations that have access to debt markets might go out and buy some of these these companies that are growing and innovating like and that arbitrage happens you know i think i think you're seeing a lot of that as well okay well i'm just looking at you know tyler you are um a very nuanced investor as i said in the beginning you you are a former trader um for a hundred billion dollar uh asset manager me i'm just a guy who makes charts i'm just a simple guy so i'm i'm looking at a simple chart and it's showing me that um in 2008 
there was uh, about half a trillion of uh, undead debt, of uh, debt on the balance sheets of zombie firms. Do mm. you know what it is now? Exponentially higher. Yeah, it's it's 1.3 trillion. Yeah, um, so when, now it's too big to fail, right? That's the best part. You, If you owe me $100, then, you know. Then I, I have a problem. But if, a if, problem. if I owe you a million, $100 million and you have a problem. Yeah, exactly. And that's sort of, I think that's the ballpark of what we're in right now. And it's just, it's a generational pass through and we'll end up putting people, you know, in that'll bail us out and, you know, extinguish debt. And it's just a mathematical fact, no? Okay. But Tyler, let's say, okay, let's say you're completely right. And we sort of have a Japanification where um, the Fed, first they buy a ton of treasuries, they sink the yield curve, uh, you know, below zero. Um, they blow out mortgage-backed securities. Oh, suddenly they're buying credit. Um, suddenly they don't need Congress to authorize that. Suddenly they're buying equities, which is what QE in Japan is. Um, Japan's ahead a new high, by the way. Have you seen that? Yeah, but okay. But what about the lost decade of Japan from like 1990, more than the lost decade, to 2010, where the equity market just leaked lower for 20 solid years? I mean, that's, yeah. that's you know, yeah, someone entering finance at 18 years old or at 22 years old um, for 20 years. That's they, they wouldn't have a, a bull market. So, like someone who's, um, you know, met multiple years older than you would never have seen a bull market if you start there. Like that's a big deal, right? Yeah, but there's a difference between the U.S. and Japan. The U.S. is like the where people, human capital go to congregate and create new ideas. Like that's the John Burbank, like human capital congregates. So so it's Japan, right? In the 70s and 80s. I mean, people, the, the Japanese bought uh, Pebble Beach, right? It wasn't a, a, a sort of a saying that people people were afraid of the Japanese because they were so successful. Yeah, but that they were a very. I guess my point being, the capital markets are so much more in depth here. Like, it's just a bigger, bigger market. And you know, what, it, let me ask you a question. Like, even with Japanese equities breaking out, like, how hard is it to trade a Japanese equity? I bet you you have a gazillion more uh, Japanese citizens owning U.S. stocks than. Uh, vice versa. It's just harder to invest in. Yeah. Unless well, you're uh, Yeah. Well, Tyler, uh, I feel like this is a really interesting um, chat uh, that we had. Hopefully the viewers at home uh, found it as interesting as, as I did. Um, I just want to say, you know, we sort of pitched this as a, as a battle between two people, an intellectual clash between two people who have different views. Let's just say the, the high, U.S. high yield uh, option adjusted spread is now at 4.22. Um, the next time we meet, if it's below that, uh, I will be the humble guy yet again. And if it's above that, uh, you'll, you'll have a little slice of humble pie. How, how about we say that? Fair enough. I love it. I learned a lot from you, Jack. Thanks so much, man. This oh, I learned, I learned more. Excellent. Thanks, Tyler. Pleasure. Yeah. Thanks. Take care. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.